Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I don't know if you ever noticed, but in our, our internet age, we spend a lot of time and money and energy um, making ourselves look a certain way. And it's maybe easier now than ever before because you can, you can curate your image. You can put certain pictures of you out online. And, and don't you hate it when someone tags you in a picture they really wish, you really wish they hadn't tagged you in because it looks, you know, like that's not my best look, right? But we, we have this kind of stuff to make us almost look better than we are. We have like um, filters that you can apply that make things sort of like look hipster cool and aged and, and all this stuff. Basically like these filters that make our photos look as if we took them in the 70s when photos weren't that great or whatever. Like we have that and it's, a, it's this cool thing that we do where we, where we just put filters over things and make things look better. And there's just a lot of energy spent into how things look. And, and, and it's not just about how it looks, it's about how it makes you feel when you see how it looks. Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever looked at a, a, a waterfall or something and you're like, that's wonderful, and then you snap a picture of it and you're like, that picture doesn't make me feel like I feel when I look at this waterfall. It's, it's, something's missing there. And then you're like, oh, what if I put this like, cool grainy filter over it? Okay, now I feel it. Now I feel like I felt when I was looking at You know, that kind of thing. That kind of stuff happens um, all, all the time. We, we, uh, we, we, and the, part of the reason we do this, there might be some narcissism and all that, but, but I think... I think we all have a sense like, man, my public image matters. What kind of face I put out there matters. This is the reason we own mirrors in our homes is I need to check what myself, my public face looks like as I go out there to the world. What did people do before they had mirrors in, in the history of the world? I guess you had to rely on somebody around you being like, yo, you have broccoli in your teeth or like, yo, your hair, that's not so good, you know. But this is why we have mirrors. We want to check on our public image because what we put out there matters. And I, and I think that's good and that's fine, but I, but I think all of this obsession with like curating our public image means that we sometimes neglect our private self. 
we're so busy on what I look like on the outside, we're not taking stock and, and looking at who are we actually on the inside. We are, we are doing the work of exterior management, and we are neglecting the work of interior. We are signaling virtue without actually having virtue. We are supporting a cause to look good without ever doing the work to really understand the cause and really own the cause that we're supporting. We're trying to look good rather than be good. Because let's be honest, looking good is easier than actually being good. And that temptation to, to focus on the externals and, and not really work on what's going on inside of us, that, that temptation is as old as humanity. Um, you see this all the way back in the, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, they first blow it. They sin. They, they eat of the one tree God asked them not to eat from. And their response to blowing it before God is to sew fig leaves into coverings and make clothes to cover themselves. Before that, they were naked, and then they covered up because they felt ashamed. And when we feel ashamed, we, we manipulate our external image, and we, we cover things up so that we can feel better. And they did that then, and in many ways, we have been doing that ever since. And so I want to talk about today... Um, uh, uh, th- sort of that, that public image and, and when the inside doesn't match the outside and, and the challenges that come with that. And, and to do that, we've been, we've been in this series called Seven. I wanted to call it Seven, What's in the Box? But not everybody would get that or appreciate it. So we just called it Seven. Um, and, it, and, and, it's, and it's looking at seven letters that were written in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And these are seven letters Jesus wrote through uh, a guy named John, two churches that are in western Turkey, which was Asia Minor of, of that day. Um, and, and these letters were written to these seven churches. Now, there were more than seven churches in the world, but these particular seven got a letter from Jesus. And, and scholars sort of debate back and forth why these seven. Um, maybe because these seven might represent the seven kinds of churches or like seven issues that churches tend to fall into or get in trouble with, like these are maybe some more universal truths, that kind of thing. Maybe, it, maybe those churches are representative in that way. Other scholars have, have suggested, and this is pretty interesting, that the seven churches represent seven periods of time in the history of the church going forward. So the, the early church with the, the persecution and the, and the martyrs, and then uh, you know the, the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, or like the, the Renaissance period of churches, or the revivalism of the, the frontier, and maybe modern day is one of those churches. I, I don't know, that's interesting, um, but when I read these seven letters, I'm looking for, and not just because I'm a preacher, but because I'm a follower of Jesus and I want to know how this relates to my life, I'm looking for as I read these, what does this matter to us now? What does this speak to me? Does it speak to you? Does it speak to 21st century people living in the West, in, in America? Uh, is there anything in there? And, and, and I think all of these letters speak to us in different ways, but I think the letter we're going to look at today... Uh, really uh, reminds me a lot of our current day and our current culture and our current time. It's, uh, it's the, the letter that he wrote to the church that, that Chase just read for us, the church in Sardis. And so I want to start uh, reading some of it to you. Revelation 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Have you ever had a job review? You know, how, you know how in job reviews, and if you're at Capital One, you've experienced this, and, and, 
or some sort of Capital One subsidiary out there in corporate America, you've experienced this. Job reviews start with, let, let's talk about your strengths. Here's, you know, here's your attaboys, right? Like, you're doing really well on this, you're good at this, you're good at this. And then we're going to talk about your weaknesses. But we're not going to call them weaknesses, we're going to call them opportunities. This is your areas of opportunity, right? I, 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 don't, I don't love that kind of stuff. I'm like, just tell me I suck and let's move on. Can we just call it you suck at this and get better or whatever? Like, I don't know. I guess everyone doesn't like the direct approach. But anyway, these letters have typically followed that kind of pattern. Hey, you're doing this, doing this, and this. But I hold this against you. You're doing this. Not so with Sardis. He goes right into it, right to the areas of opportunity from the beginning. Uh, I know your works. I know what you guys are doing. It ain't great. That's, that's, that's kind of how he, how he opens with, with them. Um, now, the word works, when he says, I know your works, that word is loaded in the New Testament. Works for Jews, uh, who were the first Christians, were primarily came out of Judaism. Uh, they didn't think of themselves as Christians. They thought of themselves as Jews who believed in the Messiah, who now follow Jesus. Um, for the Jews, the idea of works would be works of the law. These are things that you do in order to please God. If I follow the commandments closely enough, if I keep the Sabbath, if I eat kosher, if I talk with these people but don't talk to these people, if I, if I do all of the hundreds and hundreds of rules plus the thousands of rules that the rabbis have added on top of the hundreds of rules, if I keep all of that stuff really well, those are my works, stuff that I do, and if I do that, God will be pleased with me. But it falls into this little space of uh, kind of a genie in a bottle. If I just rub the lamp, then I get my wishes. If I, if I, if I do things right, God will be pleased. I will, in effect, put God in my debt. If I do the right things, God has to show up for me. That, that kind of idea. And you see that in the ancient world. And honestly, you see that in religious ideas all over the world, even today. If I do, then God will do for me. It's this quid pro quo kind of thing of, of putting God in our debt because we do all the good, right things. And so when he says, I have seen your works, you can go there with it. And go, oh, you're trying to do the things, but it, it isn't really working. But even for Christians, um, there is a sense that we, that we do good works. Um, but the difference is, and, and we, may, we may pray, we may give generously, serve, love our city, um, uh, you know, worship together. There's things that we do, but the difference comes in the motive. The motive, we're not doing them... Uh, to get God in our debt. We're not doing that because if, he, if I do this, he will then do this back for me. It doesn't work like that. In fact, it's the opposite of that. God has initiated to us first. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2, and he famously tells us that, that God uh, is by grace that we have been saved through faith. So God initiates a loving relationship with us. It is not us climbing the ladder to him. It is God coming down to us and building a relationship with us. We receive that but that doesn't mean we don't do anything once we've received God's love. In fact, in Ephesians, at the end of this beautiful passage, he says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says this, For we are his workmanship, created in, God, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have been saved by God, loved by him. He initiated a relationship with you, not so that you can just sit there. But that, there are good works to do. We're at, we actually have purpose, mission. We should be going somewhere with our faith and doing something. This is what he challenges us with. 
Um, and, and so it, it's not, I'm going to do this and God will love me. It's God loves me, therefore I do this. You, you see this in all sorts of relationships. I thought about marriage, and this would be a good example of it, but friendship as well. Think about relationships that you have that have lasted over time. Do you do things 20 years into a relationship in order to earn the love of the other person? You don't. You already have the love of the other person. They're still there, right? Like they're, they're in it with you. You're not earning their love 20 years later, but you are doing stuff because you're loved. You are doing, yes, I will do that for you because I love you. And, and you're doing stuff maybe that keeps the love, that fuels the love, that, that, that keeps that fire going, but you're not doing it to earn it because you already have it. So the motive is different in what you do, and motives matter. And so the church at Sardis is doing things. They have works, but their works are empty, he says. They're, they're dead. They're doing stuff, but it doesn't really matter. There's no, there's no heart um, behind it. In fact, the church at Sardis is pretty well known for it in their community that they're, they're involved, but inside they were dead. Um, I think you can see this in the modern era pretty easily. As a church in Richmond, it's not hard to look around and find problems in the city and things that need addressing. There, you go, uh, if Jesus' kingdom is bringing heaven on earth, what doesn't look like heaven? Oh, lots of things look like hell. And, and how could we fix those things? So when you look at racism or uh, some, some, some struggles with poverty and violence and uh, the abortion rate's really high in Richmond and um, teachers are really struggling now and there's a lot of challenges there and parents are pulling their hair out trying to figure out what to do. And this is outside of... COVID and all the things over the last year and a half, right? Just the, the outside of that, there's still all of these issues in the city and, and, and medical professionals are worn out and they need encouragement and, and, and just have military and, and police force and all these challenges that you see in the city. It's very easy to look around as a church and go, well, let's help with that. Let's, let's start a prison ministry and work with prisoners. Let's, let's start this for single mothers. Let's do that. And, and, and as a church, we have gotten involved in, in some cases started, but in a lot of cases we've connected with a lot of those things in the city. And those are great things to do. They are. They're, they're good things to, to look around and go, man, this is a mess. Let's, let's help make things uh, better. And the number of good works that we could do as a church in the city is almost limitless. And, and there are churches all over the city that are, that are getting into them, and it's great. Um, when I look at the city of Richmond, I see churches getting involved all over the place. And I shudder to think if you were to somehow magically remove every church and every Christian from any city, um, I don't think you'd like what, what remains because Christians and churches are driving a whole lot of social good. And so whatever you think about religion or faith or motives or any of that kind of stuff, just from, a, from, the, from the sheer standpoint of like who's doing the work, it's not only Christians doing the work, but there are a ton of Christians and churches doing good work all over the city. And if you do good work as a church, your neighbors will love it. People will be like, oh, that church, they do such nice things. They, they do a farmer's market, and they do a, this thing over here, and they painted a mural, and they clean up trash, and like, people will love that. The media will show up and do stories about it. I know because we've experienced that here in the last 13 years. The media will show up and do stories. Oh, isn't this great? They did this thing. We love it. Those are nice stories to tell about churches. But the danger is you do those things and you're known for it and you become like the church in Sardis. It really, at the end of the day, you're dead inside. 
And it's weird because people will love a church like that in some way. They'll love a church that doesn't really believe anything, that doesn't preach anything, that doesn't have convictions about anything, that isn't really pointing towards the hope of anything, but does good things. If you will just do good things and shut up about what you believe, we will love you for it. That's kind of what you see in the culture, and I think that's what was happening in, in Sardis. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead inside. It was a, it was a, a dead church. It, it is very possible to be doing stuff and being very busy and being dead inside. And you know that, not take it out of the church context, you know that, in, again, in relationships. Um, I can do things for my wife, but if my heart's not in it, there's no relationship there, really. Like, yeah, I can transactionally do this thing that will make you happy. I'll do this chore or serve you in this way. But you can tell, right, when, when the heart's not in it. In, in any relationship, not just marriage, but in dating and friendships, you can tell when the heart's not in it. And it, that stuff matters. It, it doesn't, you, it, you can't just do good deeds and have no heart in it. So what does Jesus say to them? Verse 2, wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. So he just told them that you have a reputation for being alive, but then you're dead. And then he says, wake up. Don't you think it's weird to say wake up to a dead person? That's the wrong thing, right? That's not what you say. A sleeping person, you tell them to wake up. A dead person needs resurrection, not to wake up, right? So it's kind of weird what he's doing here. It's, kinda, it's a little bit mixed. But I think there's a, a, a spiritual death or a decay or like this is rotting from the inside and is falling apart. And, and there's a sense in which they're sleepwalking, that they're, they're the undead, they're alive but not quite alive, that kind of thing. But, it, but I think the idea of wake up actually has some roots in Sardis itself, um, and we're going to show you a video here in a second, and I, I, I want you to see that Sardis had uh, its own history. There's a story behind people falling asleep when they shouldn't in Sardis. And so we were there back in June, and we shot some video of it. There are a lot of birds in this video, so you enjoy their music, but also listen to what I'm saying. Sardis was the Paris of its day. It had once been the capital of the legendarily wealthy Lydian Empire. Myth told that Midas came here to be rid of his golden touch, and he washed in the waters coming from Mount Momus, and he left behind this residue of gold dust. The golden touch rubbed off on Sardis, and everything the city touched prospered. Sardis was a center of finance in the ancient world. Some historians believe that pure gold was so commonplace under King Crescent that Sardis became the birthplace of currency. Life was good and luxuries abounded. Treasure hunters have scoured the hills for centuries looking for the rumored mountains of treasure that King Crescent hid. Yes, life was good in Sardis. However, Jesus told the church in Sardis that they were on their last legs. Even though to everyone else they looked like a vibrant and healthy church, just below the surface, there was a disaster looming. Jesus commanded his church to wake up before it was too late.
Every resident of Sardis and its surroundings would have known exactly what Jesus was referring to when he said to wake up. Sardis had one of the most impressive fortresses on their castle-like Acropolis. It was well known that it was a virtual suicide for an army to try to charge up the steep side of the mountain to take Sardis. Many had tried and failed, so Sardis had gained a reputation for invincibility and strength. However, when Cyrus of Persia had conquered most of the known world, he was determined to crack through Sardis' defenses somehow, so he offered a rich reward to anyone who could figure out a way through Sardis' defenses. One attentive soldier watched Sardis' defenses day and night, until one night he saw a soldier fall asleep up on the top, and he watched his helmet fall down the ravine. This amused the watching Persian soldier. But then he was stunned when just only minutes later, the same soldier who had fallen asleep showed up at the base of the ravine to retrieve his helmet. That should have been impossible unless there was a secret entrance to the walls. The soldier ran to tell Cyrus the Great, who readied his forces to attack the place at nightfall. The Persians readied for the bloodbath that was going to be necessary to secure a victory over Sardis. But much to their surprise, when they invaded through the secret entrance, they found all the defenders of Sardis sound asleep, and they conquered mighty Sardis with barely any casualties. 400 years later, the Greek king Antiochus remembered the ancient stories of Cyrus and wondered if he could break into Sardis the same way. Much to his shock, he again attacked the invincible city and broke through the vaunted impregnable walls and again found the defenders of Sardis sound asleep. So much for reputation. Jesus draws on this well-known history to warn his church that despite their image of strength and vitality, that he knows the true state of lethargy, weakness, and utter compromise of his church. And he too will come like a thief in the night, and unless his church wakes up, they too will be stunned by their quick collapse, just as their ancestors had been. So the question I want us to think about is... Um, you can ask yourself this, and this is a question no one asks you, right? And, and no one, um, th- this doesn't come up at work. You won't hear this in a performance review. Your spouse may never ask you this. This is a question you're going to need to ask yourself. Um, am I asleep spiritually? Am I asleep spiritually? Have I switched off? Am I just going through the motions and there's no life there? I'm, I'm, I'm sw- sleepwalking through life and, and faith. And I, and I think we need to ask ourselves that. Now, how do you answer it? How do you know if you're asleep? Let me give you a couple ideas about what sleepwalking is like and what it's like when we're, we claim to have faith and don't. A um, couple ideas. Number one, when you are asleep, you don't notice the threats. When you're asleep, you don't notice the threats. I, I think I'm a heavy sleeper, but the truth is I really rely on white noise when I sleep. Anybody white noise people, sleepers, right? You need, you need like a fan going or something. Um, and I feel this when I travel and I don't have those things. It actually happened last week. We were at someone's house and there was no fan and I didn't use the white noise app on my phone. I was like, you know what? I don't, it's a crutch. I don't need that. I'm just going to sleep. Do you know how loud the silence is in a house when you're trying to sleep and there's no white noise? It's like deafening. It's so loud, the silence of like you know, the creaking of the, and then someone's breathing, and then there's like the rustling of the, I'm just like, ah, how do, how, how do you sleep through this? So I, 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 once I have white noise, I, I sleep fine. I'm a good sleeper. In fact, 
Fun fact, if you want to invade my home, um, I won't tell you where I live. If you want to invade my home, I just, in the middle of the night, I'm just not, I'm just not there for it, you know? Like, I'm just like, ah, oh, I just want to sleep. Like, if you, if you broke in, I don't know, people, that's why gun ownership's so high in this country, is everyone thinks that when someone breaks in their house in the middle of the night, they're going to get up with a Glock, and they're going to just go to, go to work and do business or whatever. I'm just going to be like, yo, it's late, can you... Just don't grab that one painting. Have at it. Can we do this in the morning? I'm just, like, I'm going to be the worst because when I'm sleeping, I, I, I'm in. I'm in on it. And, and, and so when, when you're sleeping, uh, you, you don't exactly notice the threats. Um, and I think it can be like that with our faith. Uh, we, we're just kind of moving along, and we don't notice that there are threats. Now, the big obvious threats you might notice, if someone openly flirts with your spouse in front of you, you go, well, that ain't cool. Like, why are you doing that? There's a threat. I, I detect a threat here. You see that because it's open and obvious. But when you have a lunch with an attractive coworker, because it's just a lunch work, a work lunch thing, and you just did that, and it's fine, and, and you kind of walk away and go, man, I'm looking forward to having lunch with her again. Well, there's a threat there, potentially. Potentially. That, that is different, right? It's, it's, very, it's very subtle, um, it, 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 it's, a different, it's a different sort of, sort of thing. Um, if you love attention from people at work, but you're annoyed by the attention at home, there's some stuff there. Um, and so we, we, we tend to notice the obvious threats. We don't notice the subtle ones. We may say, you know, I don't want to look at porn, man. I, I really need to lock this down. So we lock down my phone. I lock down all the screens. I'm not going to get into this. I'm not going to pursue that because I, I don't want to be the guy or, or, or girl that looks at that. And you, and you take that away. And then, but it's like, man, that show on Netflix is pretty good. And it's only a little porny. Um, you know, just a, a, there's a, a bit there, you know, and it's just like, man, I really, I really in, enjoy that. And so it's, it's those little things that, that you don't notice. And we may justify them. We say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a man. I'm red-blooded American male. And just a little look. And who cares? And what does it matter? And all that. We, we justify it in all of these ways. And I think when we do that, we're, we're acting like we're asleep. We're sleepwalking. We don't recognize the threat when we see it. King Solomon is a guy who knew about lust and, and uh, really struggled with, with women and, 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 and challenges that he had. had hundreds of wives and concubines. It was just a, a, a big mess in ancient Israel. And, um, and that's reported in the scripture not as an example to follow, but it's just this is what is and this is what happened. And it caused a lot of problems um, in Israel and for him and in his relationship with God. But he wrote in Song of Solomon, he wrote these words, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. I love that idea, catch the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. It's not a big bear waltzing through your vineyard that's going to destroy it. It's just little foxes, and you've got to catch them. It's just the little things that will spoil it, the, 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 the little glance, the little look that you think is no big deal, the things that you go, ah, it's no big deal, who cares? It's those little things that eventually will, will spoil, spoil the vineyard. And so let me ask you, how's that going for you? What are the areas right now where you're asleep, um, where you're just going through the motions with God? Or the areas you're going through the motions with your spouse, with your date, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, with, with your kids, with, with your job. So, number one, when you're asleep, you don't notice the threats. Number two, when you're asleep, you cannot tell real from fake. Have you ever had a dream where your significant other cheated on you in the dream? 
That's the worst, right? I haven't had those dreams. My wife has had those dreams, right? So she'll wake up like a little bit angry at me, you know? And I didn't do anything. I was asleep. <laughs> and I wake up, and she's just, there's like a little edge there, you know? And she's like, well, she, you know, she's, and then she'll explain it to me. She's like, well, I had this dream, and you were doing, you know, this. And, and, and it's like fear and insecurity and anxiety, right? And she'll be like, you were, you were doing this thing. And, and then I start feeling really bad of, like, what I didn't do, you know? And I'm like, oh, gosh. Like, and then you're like, yeah, man, I, like, I can kind of get into it because I'm like, yeah, I guess I was a jerk, huh? Like, you know, you kind of want to go with it and be like, man, I, I was kind of terrible. Yeah, but, but then, but, you know, if, if she gets angry, you're sort of like, okay, hold on. Like, I don't know that woman and I don't own a Ferrari. That never ha- that literally has never, ever happened. Like, stop, you know. But, but, but this, and this happens for all of us. Like, in dreamland, it is very difficult to tell what's real and what's fake, they get confused. Real things going on in the room when you're sleeping, that's not, that's not on your radar. But like you flying through a canyon in your dream, that becomes very real, right? We confuse real and fake when, when we're, we're asleep. Um, for Christians, let me be very direct with you. And I know not everyone in this room is a Christian, but if you're a follower of Jesus, let me be direct with you about this. Jesus is the most real thing in the world, his life, his death, his resurrection, and, and, and that he is the king and we are in his kingdom and that we follow him, that is the most real stuff in the world. And, and all of, almost all of our sins are going to happen when we think something else is more real than that. When we go, this matters more, this is more important than that, this is when we will sin. Let me give you an example. When we are tempted to worry, what does Jesus say about worry? Anyone? He says, don't, <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, that's easy. Don't worry, you know? Like, don't be angry. Don't be sad. Don't be, like, easy, right? No, it's not easy. When you worry, it floods the compartment of emotions. There's all this stuff going on. And yet, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us not to worry. And he basically says, look, God takes care of flowers and birds and, and all of the things. He covers it. He will cover you too. He will take care of you. Now, either you believe that and you truly believe in your core, God will take care of me, or you don't believe that and then have at it and start worrying and freak out and get so anxious because you don't actually believe what is real, that God will care for you, and you believe what is fake, that if you don't care for you yourself, everything is going to fall apart. Uh, another example, we, get, we, we, we fail, we, we blow it, we, we mess up, we sin, we, we burn it down. And it's very easy in that situation to make that our identity and go, man, not only did I fail, but I just kind of suck. Like, I'm terrible, I blew it just like I always do, I'm the worst, that kind of thing. And when we do that, we believe that I, my failure is the most real thing in the world, and the fake thing is what God says about me. Because what God says about me is that I am loved that, that I am his, that I am his, that he's the king, I'm in his kingdom, I'm following after him, like all of this is true, that, that he died for me, all of that is real, and this idea that I suck is actually fake, but when we confuse those things because we're asleep, we don't, we don't get the truth of it. This is why we sing it. We sang a song today, did you catch the words? Take heart in this one truth, God is madly in love with you. Right? This is true. We sing it to remember, to be reminded that that, that that is the real stuff and that what 
what a friend said to us, what our mom said to us once, what like any of these things. Like these things are not the truth. The truth is we are loved by God. Um, and so we have to distinguish between the true and the fake. Now, it would be very easy for me right now to go on a rant about fake news, right? To, to talk about discernment and, and, oh, people are posting this and publishing this and saying this, and this is real news and this is fake news, and, and, and because we're, we're swimming in that, right? Um, and I am concerned about that. I think everybody should live accordance to the truth with a small T and with a capital T. It does us no good to live by lies. Like, understand what is true, what is real, and live according to that. Like, I think that's, um, I, I think that's a, a big deal. But actually, my frustration hasn't just been with, hasn't really been about people reposting fake things and things like, stuff people get worked up about. Um, I think, I think for me, one of my biggest frustrations of the last year and my biggest disappointments has been um, with mentors of mine, uh, followers of Jesus, people who have walked in their faith longer than I have in, in some cases, um, who, not that they repost fake news, it, it, that's not, some people are really bent around the axle about that. Um, that's not been my concern my concern is when deeply committed Christian people bang on all the time about masks, vaccine, Trump, Biden, and then insert one of about 10 other things. And it's not that there are no conversations to have about those things, and it's not that there, there aren't important issues going on with those things, but if you are a follower of Jesus, all of those things are way down the list of what is most important. And I don't understand how long-time committed Christian people can get so wrapped up in those things as if those things are everything. Of all the people in the world, we should know those things are not everything. They're just not. How can we get... Why are we wrapped up in those things? We are the gospel people. Do we believe Psalm 118? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Is that true or not? Is it real or not? Because we're going to believe the fake thing, that man can do everything to me, that it all can be taken away from me. That's what, we're, that's what culture is screaming at us. We're the people who should believe that anything can kill us, virus or whatever can kill us, and we're the ones who should know that ain't it. This is not the end. Our death is not the end of this thing. There's more. We have eternity. We have hope. Do we actually believe this? We have to wake up. We have to wake up, not because Marxists are coming for your children. If you want to have that conversation, I'm not going to do it up here, but we can have coffee later and talk about it. But that's not the reason why we need to wake up. We don't need to wake up because someone's going to make America a, less, a little less America-y. We need to wake up because our faith is real, that God is real, that we are citizens of another kingdom, and that's the stuff that matters. Um, that's what Jesus is pointing to, wake up. He's not, he's not, Jesus doesn't tell the church in Sardis, wake up because... The wrong person is Caesar right now in Rome, and we really need to fix it. No. He's talking to the church and saying, you've you got to know what's real, and you've got to stay woke. 
right? You got you to know what's going on. How do we do that? Verse 3, let me go back to it. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And if he comes to my house, I will be asleep, and I will be like, I, I'm sorry, I'm sleeping. I cannot, I cannot do this right now. Um, he says repent. We, we, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Repent, turn away from evil, from sin, from wrong. Um, but, he, but he says remember, um, basically remember your faith, remember what you've learned, and he says, and keep it. And that's the last piece here is we need to keep the faith. Keep it. The way we stay awake is by keeping our faith. It is not by ginning up an entirely new faith. It's not like, let me find a new faith that works a little better in the modern world and fits a little better with all the things that are going on in culture. No. What he calls us to and what we need to be reminded of is that we have to keep what we had. We need to keep the faith that we had. This is counterintuitive to us in America because what we want is new and improved. We want a quick solution, a new solution to old problems. Oh, you're struggling with this? Well, now I fix it that way. And we want that about anything, about, about food, about weight, about exercise, about career, about language learning. Like, let me just get an app. And like, all the things, we want quick, easy solutions. And the reason we want that is because we live in a consumer culture, and if I can get you to buy into a, com- a quick, easy solution, I can sell it to you. I cannot sell you the solutions that Scripture actually gives. Um, the, the scripture doesn't give ones that you're supposed to purchase, solutions that you're supposed to, to purchase. Um, Sardis was a wealthy culture, and they had some, so maybe they had some of the same temptations that we had. And Jesus points them to the old ways, to remember and keep the old faith, to walk in the old path, to remember the old truths, that here's the truth, Jesus King we're in the kingdom, we should obey the king. That's it. You are loved by God's grace. There's eternity. There's hope. When you die, this isn't the end. Keep this and repent. Hold on to those ancient truths. We don't need the new truths. Dallas Willard said, we must teach old truths recently forgotten. It's the same old gospel. Our job as a church and as followers of Jesus is not to give out the latest and the greatest. Um, it's not to strive to be cutting edge. There's so much pressure for, I, as a pastor I feel this, maybe you feel this in your context as well, or maybe this is just a unique thing that I feel, I don't know, but I, I, I feel the pressure of, hey, this thing just happened, what, give a comment about it, give a hot take, give the pastor take on X, Y, and Z, what's the church view on whatever, um, and, and, there's, and there's a temptation of like, hey, this happened in the news. Now let's make Sunday about that thing, and now let's make Sunday about that thing, and let's just constantly keep up with whatever is new and hot and what's happening. Um, and, and, I, and I don't think that's what God calls us to do. We're not supposed to be cut, cutting edge because cutting edge won't, won't save you. We need to hold on to the old truths. Um, and I don't know how you do that without leaning into community. Yes, you should read. You should pray. You should worship um, and, and do a bit of that every day. Uh, I, it is hard to keep your head straight if your head is marinating in social media hours a day. And coming to church for an hour a week out of 168 is not going to undo that for you. Um, it, 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 it is where believers need to go. I need to get my face in Scripture 
start my day, to pray, to just focus, to unplug, to read the scripture before I ever pick up my phone in the morning. Like things like that um, should be, should be a, a challenge for us and should be the way to walk, but also that we should come together. This is why we worship together. This is why we sing old truths. When we come together and sing and take communion and do the things that we do as a church and, and teach the ancient ways and the ancient scripture, when we do that, we are doing it with millions of Christians around the world, and we are doing it with millions of Christians who have gone before us in history who bear witness to the truth of what we're doing. This is not here today, gone tomorrow. This is... The, the, the truth stretched out throughout all of history, the grand story of what God is doing in the world, and we are participating whenever we get together. And when we get together, we come together to go, I'm not crazy, you're not crazy, do you believe that? Yeah, okay, cool, me too. Like, we're in this countercultural, different, peculiar gospel thing. We are in that, and the rest of the world is not. My coworker's not, my sister's not, my, my friend from you know, around town is not. Like, yeah, other people are not in on this, but we are the gospel people. We are really in on this, and we want to come together and remind ourselves that we're not alone. America is going to change its mind on all sorts of issues about every 15 minutes or so, and it will pull and push and say, now this, and now this, and this is hot, because, because all of us are being marketed to and sold things and sold ideas and told, now you need to care about this, and now if you really signal your virtue, you need to be into this, and now to look good, you have to support this. Um, and, and that's exhausting. We have to stay rooted and grounded in the truth here on earth in, in what we have here in this time and then we stay hopeful for the next earth that is to come. So wake up, friends. Um, keep, wake up, repent, keep, keep the faith. Uh, stay awake. The world is crazy, but Jesus is still on the throne. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the challenge to Sardis and how it pushes on us to notice where we're sleepwalking and where we are just going through the motions. And God... Um, I think going through the motions is, is better than bailing on our faith altogether. But it's only a short-term fix, God. We need to look inside and not be just concerned with the outside, but look inside the heart and see what's going on. God, um, may we do the things that stir our affections for you. Um, the reading, the, the, whether it's reading or praying or worshiping or gathering with other believers or, or seeing your handiwork in nature or whatever pathway we 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 use to be close to you, God, um, may we block out the time to do that so that we can remember what is, what is real and what is fake in this world. Um, thank you, Lord, for this gathering of, of saints who come together to, um, to, to not just go along with the flow of culture, but to stand um, in a different space in it, to stand bravely um, like a, like a, like a firm boulder in the river as the water rushes around. Um, God, may, may we stand um, and, and, and stand confidently, not in our own skill or our own conviction, but stand confidently in you and that uh, you are in charge of ultimately of what's going on. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.